This program is brought to you by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu. Good afternoon. I'd like to welcome you all to the second event of the day, the first panel at the symposium devoted to the celebration of the 50th anniversary of Alfred Hitchcock's film Vertigo. Our intention here is, as I already hinted earlier when uh, introducing Richard Allen, our intention, uh, intention is to explore Vertigo as a marvelous, powerful example of what we may call expanded cinema. That is, we're interested in exploring the film's extra cinematic impact and legacy, why and how and for what reasons, in what ways, it has walked off the movie screen, so to speak, and left traces quite directly sometime, quite visible in the world at large and in and upon our lives. Thus, we will situate our discussion of vertigo at this particular panel at the intersection of film studies, film fandom, and social, political, cultural, biographical discourses and analysis. We have put together for you a very interesting panel. Scholars talking about vertigo will be Jean-Pierre Dupuis, who is the spirit behind the entire symposium, a philosopher, political scientist, whose most recent work is on the topic of the catastrophe, who is also a director of a foundation called Research of Imitation, devoted to the study of René Girard's mimetic theory, Jean-Pierre Dupuis is a professor of French and poli-sci at Stanford, emeritus professor of social and political philosophy at the École Polytechnique in Paris, and member of the French Academy of Technology. His talk will be followed, or his presentation, will be followed by Marilyn Fabes. Marilyn Fabes teaches uh, film studies in the Department of Film Studies at UC Berkeley. She is the author, among other things, of a book called Closely Watched Films, which is used by many of us in our classes and which is a book devoted to the art of narrative film and authorship in cinema. And she's currently working on a project that she calls to be a psychobiographical study of Hitchcock. And finally, the third presenter will be Roland Green, scholar of early modern culture, particular English, Latin European, and transatlantic literature. Roland is a professor of English and Comparative Literature, head of the Division of Literatures, Cultures, and Languages at Stanford, and is currently completing a book about the early modern cultural semantics. Before I turn the floor to our speakers, please allow me just to make a few more remarks. As we explore Vertigo's larger-than-life status, as it were, which pours over the strict or outside the strict framework of film analysis, we cannot but also notice that precisely this expanded or extra filmic impact also serves as best confirmation of the extent to which this event, this symposium, this celebration of Hitchcock's masterpiece is in fact also a celebration of cinephilia. For as Serge Danet, the great, perhaps one of the greatest film critics at the time, also the editor of Cahiers de Cinema, Marvelously put it, cinephilia is not simply about watching films. It's about also films watching us. What are the films that have watched your childhood? Asks Danae uh, following uh, Jean-Louis Schaeffer. Does this watch you? 
he says. He asks. Some of the answers, some of the titles of films he gives in response to this question are Psycho, La Dolce Vita, Rio Bravo, Pickpocket, and Night in Fog. These are some of the Nays' responses, and of course we can safely say that Vertigo also belongs to this group. Tanay also goes on to posit a wonderful analogy between cinephilia, cinephiliac type of spectatorship and investment in films, and the game of tennis. The film puts the ball in the court, sends it over the net. The game thus begins. It would be scandalous, says Danae, if the spectator were not to return the serve. So let us now see how our three presenters intend to do this with respect to Vertigo. Jean-Pierre Dupuy. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you very much. So I'm not a specialist of cinema. I'm not a specialist of Hitchcock. And I'm not a specialist of Vertigo. Actually, the phrase specialist of Vertigo sounds like an oxymoron to, to my ears. Um, I'm just a philosopher. And, but for me, Hitchcock was a philosopher, fellow philosopher, or even more precisely, um, metaphysician. And time, I think, is the real topic of Vertigo, as I'm going to try to show. Temporality. Um, and um, yeah. Um, but I'm going, not to, I'm, I'm going to speak not as a philosopher, actually, but as a member of this invisible club. And I know that there are quite a few people here in this room who belong to that club. The club of those whose lives were changed, fashioned, transformed by their first encounter with Vertigo. I belong to that club. I'm not sure that Richard Allen, it's not a critique, of course. Maybe he's not here. Yes, you are. Belongs to that club. <laughs> That's a topic for discussion. Uh, OK. Actually, to belong to that club, you, ha you must be really sick. Huh? I agree. That's <laughs> um, so this is the outline of my t very quick talk. Uh, first, the refutation of time in vertigo, or to love an image. Three important dates, I'm going to sell, tell you why. And then the sense of the past. To love an image, or the refutation of time. 1941. 1941 was a, um, sorry, my timer stopped. Time is my topic, so, okay. <laughs> Refuta that's a refutation of time. I'm not sure the trick is going to, to work. <laughs> anyway, uh, 1941 was an annus mirabilis, an extraordinary year. First, because that was the birth of my birth, the year of my birth. <laughs> so for me, that's the origin of everything. But also, more seriously, uh, because it was the year of the publication in Buenos Aires, Argentina, of one of the greatest and most obscure novel of the 20th century, called The Invention of Morel, La Invención de Morel, by Adolfo Bioy Casares. Bioy Casares was Jorge Luis Borges's great friend and collaborator. Octavio Paz wrote of the invention of Morel that it, quote, it may be described without exaggeration as a perfect novel, unquote. And Borges con concurred. 
A number of films and TV movies have been based on the book, unsurprisingly because of the major role film and the representation of reality come to play in the novella. The most famous film based on this novel is Anna René, L'année dernière à Marienbad, last year at Marienbad, and the most famous TV series based on this book is Lost. Let me summarize the plot. On the run from the police for, for a crime in his homeland, the narrator has wound up on a deserted island, known to be the focal point of a mysterious disease. The novel forms his diary, the entry is undated, from the moment when a miracle happens. That miracle is the arrival of other people to the island, people dressed as if from another era, who take up residence, having seemingly come from nowhere. Fearing being turned into the authorities, the narrator stays out of their way, but soon becomes attracted to one of their party, whom he observes, observes from a distance. He spies on her, and while doing so, falls in love with her. She and another man, a bearded tennis player called Morel, who visits her frequently, speak French among themselves. Morel calls her Faustine, Faustine. The fugitive decides to approach her, but she doesn't react to him. He assumes she is ignoring him, but his encounters with the other tourists have the same result. Nobody on the island seems to notice him. When he realizes that the conversations between Faustine and Morel repeat exactly every week, he fears he's going crazy. The Morel of the title is obviously a nod to A.G. Wells's The Island of Dr. Moreau. And like his literary forerunner, Morel is an unscrupulous scientist. The narrator comes up with all sorts of theories about what is happening on the island, but finds out the truth when Morel tells his companions he's been recording their actions of the past week with a machine of his invention capable of reproducing reality. He claims the recording will capture their souls, and through looping, they will relive that week forever, and he will spend eternity with the woman he loves. Although Morel doesn't mention her by name, the fugitive is sure Morel is talking about Faustine. The fugitive learns how to operate the machine and inserts himself into the recording. So it looks like he and Faustine are in love. On the diary's final entry, the fugitive describes how he's waiting for his soul to pass onto the recording while dying. He asks, he asks a favor to the man who will invent a machine capable of merging souls based on Morel's invention. He wants the inventor to search for them, Faustine and himself, and let him enter Faustine's conscience as an act of mercy. That's the summary of the novel. The invention of Morel anticipates in a very disturbing way the utopia of what today goes by the name of transhumanism. Morel's machine makes human beings immortal as it records impressions of them and inserts these representations into the real world. 
Far from mere holograms, however, these projections have weight, depth, height, and appear as real people engaging all five senses. And this, Morel argues in his speech, is tantamount to immortality. Referring to a previous experiment he has performed on a female companion whose name is Madeleine. I'm not making it up. He <laughs> says the following. You have the Spanish here, and this is the English translation. When all the senses are synchronized, the soul emerges. When Madeleine existed for the senses of sight, hearing, taste, smell, and touch, Madeleine herself was actually there. The recreation in reality of the past events supplants the current reality of, the, of their participants. The downside, of course, is that at the time of projection, the force of the superimposed reality is so strong as to draw the life from those recorded and place it in the projected copies. So in a sense, this is, this is the inverse of Oscar Wilde's novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray, so well analyzed by Richard Allen in his wonderful book, um, Hitchcock's Romantic Irony. Um, the um, portrait of Dorian Gray where um, the picture and not the man is subject, subject, to, to, subject to time and inverts it again so that the playback of a recording of events takes on greater reality than the continued existence of the subjects. In the invention of Morel, two kinds of temporality coexist. The first is the linear temp temporality, where events occur. Um, the arrival on the island of the narrator, his love for Faustine, his subsequent discovery of Morel's immortality machine, and his final insertion into Morel's projection of reality. The second temporality is circular. It is a projection of reality through Morel's device, one that repeats a series of events in a looping fashion. The projection that beguiled the fugitive, the projections that beguiled the fugitive, are complete, completely independent of linear time circling beside our narrator, but never interacting with him. Once he recognizes that Faustine exists only in circular time, not even tangentially intersecting with his own time, the narrator resolves his frustration with the projected world by joining it. Are we that far from Scotty's predicament? Well, we're not very far because this novel was one of the sources for um, Boileau and Narcejac when they wrote D'Entre les Morts, From Among the Dead. 1958. I was 17 years old, not difficult to compute, when I fell madly in love with Madeleine. So I'm very different, I mean, my case is very different from uh, Richard's. Um, it was a classic case of love at first sight. The first time I saw the movie, I remained glued to my seat and watched it three times in a row as it was possible to do at the time um, without buying a new ticket. <laughs> Over the next three weeks, I must have returned 10 times to slake my passion. And over the next 50 years, I must have seen Madeleine, let's say, 60, 70, 80 times, including last night. <laughs> there is only one remedy for this type of obsession. 
Following the example of Cazares' narrator in La Invención de Morel, one must enter the film, become a character oneself, an image. I was 17 and unable to approach Madeleine. I was living in France, of course. All I could do instead was devote myself to Kim Novak. <laughs> Feverishly combing celebrity magazines uh, for anything I could find on her. Inevitably, I committed the same category mistake, as a philosopher would put it, that Scotty does when he tries to find Madeleine in Judy. Like everyone else, like Richard this morning, I'm using the term, the name Madeleine, to refer to the creature with whom Scotty falls in love. Like everyone else, I'm perpetuating an error, for it is an error, of course. There is only one Madeleine, Madeleine Elster, the real wife. Uh, we should then call Madeleine, the person we call Madeleine, well, the person, the character, the image that we call Madeleine, we sh should call her the false Madeleine, the pseudo-Madeleine, Madeleine in quotation marks, etc. as you said this morning. So Madeleine, in quotation mark, is a fictional character. Well, that seems, uh, sounds obvious. All characters in, in the fiction that we call Vertigo are by definition fictional. Scotty Ferguson, Gavin Elster, Midge, etc. However, Madeleine's case is very special. Madeleine is a fictional character within the fiction. There is a mise en abîme, as a French okay, um, writer once put it. Madeleine's existence, I submit, is less the result of Elster's stratagem or scheme and script than the result of Scotty's love. Can one love a fictional character and by that very fact endow it with existence? Such a thing can happen within a fiction like Vertigo, after, for after all, such a thing can happen in life. Every lover of Madeleine will know exactly what I mean. Madeleine only exists through Scotty's love. The authenticity of this love is dubious, however, to say the least. Why does Scotty love Madeleine and wish to possess her? And uh, Jean-Marie this morning, Jean-Marie Apostides this morning hint, hinted to that. Because she's possessed by Carlotta and so cannot be possessed by him. Why is he fascinated by her to the point of going unhinged? Because she's herself fascinated by death. And this brings us close to Denis de Rougemont's, I don't know if you're familiar. Okay, I fell, I fell, I fell in love with Madeleine, okay. Um, <laughs> here she is. Okay, well. Oh, sorry, sorry. Sorry, 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 sorry. What's going on here? Denis de Rougemont's wonderful book, L'Amour et l'Occident, published in 1939, Love and the Western World in English, um, which serves as sentimental education to many Europeans of my generation. Um, actually, Rougemont's book is an analysis of the myth of Tristan, Tristan and Isotte. Um, I will paraphrase here Rougemont by replacing the names of the heroes in the myth with those of Hitchcock's character. So, quote, fake quote, fake quote. One cannot conceive of Scotty ever marrying Madeleine. She's not the type of woman one marries, for otherwise she would no longer be what she is. Try to imagine her as Mrs. Scotty or Mrs. Ferguson. That would be the very negation of passion. And Denis de Rougemont concludes, the victory of passion over desire, the victory, the triumph of death over life. As we know, Scotty's nightmare reaches a peak of horror when, having transformed Judy into Madeleine, 
having at last made her his creature, that is to say, a being entirely created or fabricated by him, he realizes that he has done no more than to duplicate in every last detail, right down to the coil in her hair, exactly what Elster had made of the same duty. The shock of this revelation plunges us into the abyss when we, the spectators, realize at the same moment that the repetition compulsion that sends Madeleine twice to her death was itself set in motion by the initial operation that Hitchcock, so cruelly as we know, carried out on Kim Novak. The instant Scotty realizes that what we, the spectators, have understood since we first penetrated into the mind of Judy, he cannot repress a cry of rage and spite. Who was at the top when you got there? Elsa with his wife? Well, you saw that this morning. And she was the one who died, not you, the real wife. You were the copy, you were the counterfeit. And a moment later, you played his wife so well, Judy. He made you over, didn't he? Just as I've done, but better. Those two words are the most important ones for me. Envy, that destructive passion. All the envy of, in the world is condensed in those two words, but better. The Madeleine produced by Scotty is only a pale copy, a mediocre counterfeit of the Madeleine successfully created by Elser. Itself no more, of course, than a counterfeit of the only real wife, Madeleine Elser. Scotty's Madeleine is but a, the copy of a copy, a mere simul a simulacrum of the real object, the real Madeleine, whose only attraction lay in the fortune to be gained through her presumed suicide. One could hardly express more forcefully and with more devastating irony the vanity of desire. What moves Scotty in this moment of revelation is not that Judy was Elster's mistress, Scotty couldn't care less about Judy. It is that he, Scotty, redid with less success what Elster had already done. The revelation for him is not theoretical, but practical. What he desired was only an image fabricated by someone else. He apprehends this truth from the inside since he, in turn, fabricated the same image. Madeleine, he now realizes, was nothing more than an image which he copied in servile fashion. The Sense of the Past, my second part. One of the two novels that Henry James left unfinished when he died was called The Sense of the Past. James was a friend of H.G. Wells, the same Wells, and wanted to rewrite, after his own fashion, Wells' time machine. James' novel is quite complex, and he left it unfinished because of his death, of course, um, um, but I'm going to uh, read with you here a summary written of that novel written by the same Borges in a beautiful metaphysical uh, masterpiece that he wrote under the title Coleridge's Flower. In the sense of the past, the link between the real and the imaginary, that is to say between the present and the past, is not a flower as in the text by Coleridge that gives Borges' essay its title. It is a portrait dating from the 18th century, which mysteriously depicts the hero of the story. Fascinated by the canvas, the latter manages to travel back to the period when it was painted, 
one of the people he meets is necessarily the creator of the portrait, who paints it, who paints it only reluctantly, sorry, and with trepidation, for he senses something strange and uncanny in the lineaments of his future face. James thus creates an incomparable regression ad infinitum. His hero, Rafe Pendrell, voyages back to the 18th century because an old portrait fascinates him. But for such a portrait to exist, Pendrell must have voyaged back to the 18th century. The cause comes after the effect. The motive for the voyage is one of the consequences of the same voyage. Incredible, isn't it? Well, that was also a source for Boileau and Narcejac when they wrote Entre les Morts, D'Entre les Morts, from, again, from Among the Dead. Um, and it's it was also possibly it, uh, the source of one of the most brilliant remakes of Vertigo by a French director with an American name, Chris Marker, La Jetée. So this, this is a very interesting diagram. We have here at the origin, two Wells, two, two novels written by H.G. Wells. You see almost at the same time, The Time Machine and the um, Island of Dr. Moreau. Uh, time Machine begot the sense of the past. Uh, the Island of Dr. Moreau begot uh, La Invention de Morel. And Boileau and Narcejac were inspired by those two novels when they wrote from D'Entre les Morts, which gave rise to the uh, script of Vertigo. The uh, well, the uh, English title for this novel is uh, The Living and the Dead, actually. Uh, sorry. Ah, my god. I'm very bad, sorry. Oh, this is a quote from uh, La Jetée, of course. Um, actually, there, is, there was a remake, an American remake of La Jetée, titled, yeah, it's a very complicated, uh, the, the, the Army of the Twelve Monkeys, or the Twelve Monkeys? Twelve Monkeys, exactly, yes, exactly. Well, I prefer La Jetée, but uh, that's mine. <laughs> Uh, let me propose now to conclude a brief experiment to introduce my favorite metaphysics of time, which I've dubbed with a nod to French philosophers Henri Bergson and his most brilliant pupil Jean-Paul Sartre, projected time, and also a reference to La Invention des Morels. This is the experiment. Sound. So it has very... It has been said very often that Bernard Herrmann's score for the movie accounts for, let's say, half of the success of the movie. Uh, and I think it's true. I mean, it, it, do the experiment. Watch the movie without the music, and you'll see the difference. But the problem is that this is not the score of the movie. This is the prelude to the third act of Tristan und Isolde. This is the right score. And of course, the structural resemblance, you have to go at the deep structure of the scores, is astounding. The same sequence of chords which never come to resolution to the perfect chord. So Tristan und Isolde is behind the, uh, everything here. In a piece called Kafka and his Precursors, Borges examines a series of authors and works that can be considered the precursors of the author of the trial. And he writes, Kafka's idiosyncrasy 
in greater or lesser degrees present in each of these writings. But if Kafka had not written, we would not perceive it. That is to say, it would not exist. The fact is that each writer creates his precursors, his work modifies our conception of the past, and it will modify the future, the action on the past. So oh, this, this is a list of the precursors of Kafka according to Borges. And um, so you could say that in the realm of causation, Kafka's work, Kafka's work was influenced by all these writers, except that these writers had no influence on one another. I mean, they were. But in the realm of meaning, time is reversed. That is, Kafka's work creates something that belongs to the past, although that thing that belongs to the past didn't exist in the past before Kafka's creation occurred. Okay, so this loop, for me, is really what I call the metaphysics of projected time. Uh, in the realm of causal influence, you could say that Herman's core for vertigo would not have been possible without the prior existence of Wagner's prelude. In the realm of meaning, though, Herman's core changes the past as it alters the meaning that we attribute to Wagner's prelude. It is this paradoxical reversal of time that I see at the core of the structure and the contents of vertigo. Changing the past, returning to the past to undo what was done is one way to describe Scotty's Ferguson's mad quest. For the expression of, for, sorry, for the experience of projected time to come into existence, the loop between past and future needs to close back onto itself. If the loop doesn't close properly, the world collapses into nothingness in the form of what you call a paradox. The fiction in the fiction of the temporal circle linking Madeleine to Carlotta, as in the story by Henry James, is a model of the loop that closes back onto itself. Likewise, the loop between my life and vertigo, my life, Jean-Pierre Dupuis' life, and vertigo is a perfect loop. I mean, in the realm of causation, my life is inscribed in vertigo, was in fashion by vertigo, but in the realm of meaning, my life gives a different, changes the meaning of vertigo, like everyone else's. On the other hand, when Scotty, with the complicity of Judy, of course, as we know, attempts to repeat the plunge into the past, well, the loop doesn't look back onto itself. And this because of an object. The necklace, Madeleine, that was the slip. I remembered the necklace. One shouldn't keep, shouldn't keep souvenirs of a killing. You shouldn't have been that sentimental. An object prevents the loop from closing back onto itself. Completely prisoner of his past, Scotty knows only one way to bring it back. And then he admits to his failure, there is no bringing her back. And that is by duplicating exactly, by duplicating it exactly as Morel did, as it was. His encounter with Judy, the second part of the movie, this authentic woman, party to a crime to be sure, but a truly genuine woman, not a spook, could have been his salvation, his openness toward the future. Instead, Scotty sees only Madeleine, in quotes, in Judy. Scotty and Judy make a deal, most likely with the devil, to voyage into the past, to become Scotty and Madeleine once again, and to salvage a love which, as should be clear to them at this stage, never existed. 
because Madeleine never existed. Despite some rough spots and resistance on the part of Judy, as we know, the end of the voyage is reached without any need for a time machine at La Wells. It is at this very moment that an object appears which prevents the causal closure of the temporal circle. Carlotta's supposed necklace should have disappeared with Madeleine, of course, as we know. That is why the form, I mean, the perfect form would be a circle. But the form, as uh, Richard Allen said repeatedly this morning, the form of the movie is not a circle. It's a circle that tries to close back onto itself and never succeeds in doing so. So it's, the form is really a spiral, a downward spiral, a whirling descent into the abyss. So I'm very much in agreement with what Richard Allen said this morning, except that I tried to expand this to the time dimension. And this, that I'm going to conclude with this, um, this form is exemplified beautifully by two things. The shapes designed by Saul Bass and John Whitney in the credits, and of course the score of Herman that corresponds to the, the first part of the movie. Let's, okay, let, if you give me two minutes. So the necklace, Madeleine. Oh, so those forms actually, if we are talking about form, those forms were designed by Saul Bass and John Whitney in keeping with a mathematical invention by a French mathematician of the 19th century called Lissajou, and they are called Lissajou curves. And um, I mean, the only one here that doesn't close onto itself is the one in the middle on the uh, lower rank, all the others. So let's, uh, sorry, my God, I'm really bad. <laughs> well, that's the end, almost the end, but just for, well, what's going on? No, I, I, don't man I don't seem to be able to, what do you do to, uh, no, okay, so let's skip it. That's, that's, you know, that's the, uh, what you wanted to show, you could, you'd, you'd, and I want to show it that I can't, that's the, uh, no, no. Okay, okay, let's, no, it's, I don't know why, I cannot do it. Okay, so that's the end, merci. Thank you. Go on with the presentations and leave all the questions for the end, please. So, Marilyn yeah. Fabe. Uh, I should give you my. Oh. No, yes. Do we need it? Do we need oh, maybe not. Oh. oh, I don't know why he put it on me because you can use the microphone. Uh, can you hear me pretty much? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Th these papers have just been mind-boggling, and it's awful to be third because you think, well, this is what I think, and he already said that. And, and so, <laughs> anyway. Anyway, I want to thank Matthew and the Stanford Humanities Center for inviting me from Berkeley to come up here and talk about this film. You know, the only problem is 20 minutes to talk about the film that has obsessed my life, but I will try to get through this. Um, first of all, a bit, you know, because we are all supposed to start out with the personal and vertigo. And so I was a 16-year-old high school student <laughs> in Cincinnati, Ohio in 1958 when I first saw Vertigo. And I think the film was traumatic for me. 
I loved it intensely, but I remember it gave me terrible, obsessive dreams that were very much like Scotty's dream. My mind wouldn't stop going. Something had really gotten to me, and I became obsessed just with Madeline, just as Scotty did. I was a you know, heterosexual high school student madly in love with Madeline. And I think I've also became obsessed with Vertigo because I've seen it almost as many times as I've seen The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> when I came out to California for graduate school, one of the first things I wanted to do was go to the Vertigo locations. And so the questions that I want to address today in my talk is, first of all, why do people become obsessed with vertigo, which everybody's got their own answer. Huge amounts of ink have been spilled on that question, but a related question. And that is, what are people like me hoping to find or experience by visiting the literal remains of filmed fantasies, by going back to their locations? Not just Vertigo, but many films over the years have drawn tourists to their locations. And there's even a growing trend of people choosing vacation destinations because of films that they've seen. And the trend even has a name. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's called jet setting. Set jetting, right, set jetting rather than jet setting, okay, set jetting. Okay, so I want to argue that Hitchcock's vertigo can teach us something about this phenomena because it explores through Scotty's obsessive desire to restore the lost Madeline, the very psychological impulses that compel film viewers to return to the scene of filmed fictions so that those who desire to return to the places where vertigo was shot are actually replicating or performing the actions of its heroes. They're taking this out into life. So just as Scotty cannot accept the loss of Madeline and embarks upon this in quest to restore her, to literally get back something that he has irretrievably lost, so viewers try to restore something of the eerie romance and mystery of vertigo by also returning to these locations. But the striking similarity between Scotty's quest and that of the vertigo location seeker is that both experience a wish to recover something devoutly desired, and this goes along with what you're talking about, that was fictional, and hence it never existed in the first place. It was an impossible object. Now, the cinema of course, is also an impossible object in a way that I think is best described and so wonderfully described by Christian Metz in his book, The Imaginary Signifier, that, and because it says so much about vertigo that I think I want to talk a little bit about what Metz says about the cinema, and you'll see how this all filters back into an understanding of the fascination and obsession with vertigo. The cinema, according to Metz, offers up images that seem to be perceptually real, but at the same time, they are stamped with unreality to an unusual degree. They're real and that we literally see them up there. We're not hallucinating them. They're like dreams, but they're not like dreams which are hallucinations. But, as Metz observed, the perceived image is not really the object itself, but its shade, its phantom, its double. So we get all of these images of perceptual richness um, the exquisite detail of the larger-than-life 35-millimeter moving photographic image, but, and here's another quote from Metz, it gives it to us only an effigy, inaccessible from the outset, and a primordial elsewhere, infinitely desirable, never possessable. The paradox of cinema, then, is that it represents absence in detail, thus making it very present. 
And Metz suggests that it's this very dialectic between the seeming reality of the cinematic image and its ungraspability that resonates with all human desire, which, as defined by Jacques Lacan, is predicated on lack. And what this means, from my interpretation of it, is that we're all in pursuit of lost objects from our past for whom our present attachments stand in but do not truly fulfill our desire. The cinema, according to Metz, performs a turn of the screw, bolting desire to lack, and hence sets in motion a tantalizing but impossible desire in the spectator, which is the pleasure pain of cinematic spectatorship. Now, the frustrating allure of the cinematic medium so eloquently described by Metz um, sheds light, I think, on, more light on why film spectators are drawn to the real locations of film fantasy. Set jetters, we can speculate, make one more effort to tie that phantasmatic image to the real thing. This time I'm going to do it, hoping to find something literally to hang on to from the film. Vertigo is an especially compelling film in this regard because its plot performs another Metzian turn of the screw. Madeline, the woman with whom Scotty falls in love, is like the cinematic image herself, fictional. And this goes along with your saying in different words. She's an imaginary, imaginary signifier. Scotty, that is, falls in love with an impossible object, impossible because even within the fiction of the film, Madeline is a fantasy imago, not a real woman to begin with, groomed by Elster to play a part. The way in which Scotty falls for Madeline, after all, and this I think is really the heart of part of this, you know, why it's cinema lovers love this film so much, is that the way he falls for Madeline is really not very different in the way film goers fall in love with film stars. Caring for, desiring, identifying with idealized imaginary people in scripted situations who become more real than our next door neighbors. But because of this doubling, that Scotty's doing exactly what we're doing as we're identifying with him and his love for Madeline, our identification with Scotty's doomed desire is all the more intensified. So the spectator is to the film um, vertigo as Scotty is to Madeline. But I would like to suggest an even deeper reason why um, vertigo obsesses viewers, making them want to cling to the film, either by seeing it over and over again or by visiting the locations in which it was filmed. And this is where I go off from everybody else at the conference, so bear with me. <laughs> you can respond during the question series. This has to do with the film's psychological construction of its protagonist, a man who suffers, in the words of his physician, from acute melancholia. Now, the Italian philosopher Giorgio Agamben's formulation on melancholy are particularly relevant for understanding the kind of suffering that Scotty experiences in vertigo. Agamben understands melancholy as the imaginative capacity to make an unobtainable object, an object that never literally exists or ever was possessed, appear as if lost. Agamben's melancholic is unable to mourn, not because of a regressive identification with the lost object, that's Freud's theory in mourning and melancholia, but because the lost object never existed in the first place. What was lost is a fantasy creation. 
In melancholia is understa understood by Agamben, the individual behaves, behaves as if a loss has occurred, even though nothing has in fact been lost. In his words, the libido stages a simulation where what cannot be lost because it has never been possessed appears as lost. And this gets back to this crazy plot of vertigo. Because what I'm arguing here is that vertigo's torturously complex, convoluted, totally implausible scenario the describes or stages the very kind of loss described by Agamben. The impossible plot machinations are vital ingredients for creating a story about a man who falls in love with an empty facade, an illusion, a woman who he cannot let go of because she was never really there to begin with. Madeline you know, is a literal approximation of the impossible object, that which cannot be lost because it has never been possessed, the kind of thing that drives you crazy. Agamemnon does not elaborate on the psychological dynamics of those who fall into melancholia. After all, he was a philosopher, and I don't think he was a clinician. Because he doesn't go into, you know, what causes people to be? Is it everybody or just nuts like us who get obsessed by vertigo? <laughs> but, um, you know, what I would like to suggest is that those who suffer in this way, there's a very, very good chance that somewhere in their background is an insecure attachment to an impossible love object in childhood. And there's many reasons why children do um, um, develop insecure attachments to their early love objects. And the one that resonates very strongly with the scenario played out in Vertigo is the circumstances of a child having a depressed mother who as a result of her own bereavement was never all there or is there but isn't there, is there and disappears. And so I want to argue that Vertigo's convoluted plot plays out and replays a perverse scenario which brilliantly captures the inner experience of those who have suffered an early insecure attachment and as a result, can never develop the capacity to either truly love or truly mourn. And I, I do want to reassure you all here that I do not believe in the validity of psychoanalyzing fictional characters. I mean, they're just up there on the screen. They're images. I'm not going to fall into that trap of reifying the, the character of Scotty and saying, well, Scotty's mother was this or that, because we have given absolutely no evidence of anything about Scotty's childhood in Vertigo. At the beginning of the film, however, Scotty loses his footing and ends up hanging precariously from a loose gutter drain. And of course, that's the whole image that this whole conference was um, used to advertise the conference. Scotty just hanging on. And I would say that this image is a symbol par excellence for an insecure attachment. You know, just remember the feeling that you get. Okay. While we see this incident as occurring in the present, the eternal present of film time, because it comes at the beginning of the film in a kind of prologue, we can read it as a symbolic rendering of a foundational event, a trauma in which an insecurely attached child is abandoned by a helpless adult. The cop falls off trying to help him and is left hanging. And you know, Hitchcock is nothing but a master of finding the right image as an objective correlative as an emotional state. And that one really struck me. While Vertigo begins with its protagonist in a physically precarious situation and the spectator in terrible suspense about whether or not he's going to fall, the real terror of the film comes in the way Hitchcock implicates us in Scotty's emotional fragility when he falls for the ethereally beautiful but ever elusive 
Madeline. And so I think Hitchcock is an artist of anxiety, you know, just extraordinary. But the anxiety is not really is he going to fall and get smashed to the ground. It's is he going to have some sort of emotional annihilation. And that's the scariness as he begins going after Madeline. Scotty, it's important to note, does, does, does not just represent an every man, an ordinary guy who falls in love with a beautiful woman. He is characterized as a lonely, unattached bachelor with a drinking problem, a condition of more than one Hitchcock protagonist. He avoids involvement with an available woman who loves him, Midge, who we all love. I agree with um, Richard there. Um, instead, he seeks a phantom woman, an impossible, dangerous love object. And let me count the ways she's impossible and dangerous. I mean, first of all, she's another man's wife, his boss's wife, and so there's all the attended edible taboos around that. You know, there's that obviously edible triangle. Elster is sort of an oldster and an elder. You know, he's definitely a father figure. Secondly, he believes that she's possessed by a lethal ancestor who's driving her to her death. I mean, is that the kind of girlfriend you want? <laughs> she is possibly a ghost herself, as other people have pointed out. And four, even if we discount the theory that Madeline's possessed by a ghost or is a ghost herself, and like Scotty insists on a rational explanation for her symptoms, the only possibility that remains is she's crazy. And mad is even in the name, Madeline, Mad Madeline. And she's suicidal to boot. As if to emphasize the insecurity of Scotty's hold on Madeline, Hitchcock repeatedly sets up Scotty and through Scotty's point of view, the film spectator, to experience Madeline's sudden disappearances throughout the film. Oh my God, is she going to go? Even when, she, when he goes back to get the mail, you think she's going to be gone. You're constantly seeing her almost disappearing. And it really does, I think, make you keep reenacting that awful feeling that something you desperately desire is suddenly going to be gone, that awful, visceral feeling. And that's part of the anxiety that I'm talking about. In fact, an alternate title for Vertigo might well be the title of one of Hitchcock's most successful early British films, The Lady Vanishes. Much of Scotty's involvement with Madeline and Vertigo resolves around his rescuing her. You know, big rescue fantasy. Lots of analytic people talk about this. But Madeline gives meaning to Scotty's life, a mission, a reason to live. But even as this hope beckons, it's also implied that Scotty, by extending himself to help Madeline, is being implacably drawn into enacting his own annihilation. And that woman at the beginning with that eye and the spiral, it's being fallen into something, something really dreadful that is beckoning you that you might get lost in forever. But Scotty's clinging to Madeline for his emotional salvation is the psychological equivalent of his hanging on to that loose drain pipe in the prologue to the film. It can only end in annihilation, and he is not physically, but mentally annihilated in, in that film. That is one of the most horrible, powerful moments after that happens in the nightmare, and you see him just sitting there. When Scotty refines Madeline, you know, when he discovers Judy, his desperate behavior towards him, interestingly, resembles that of an insecurely attached child clinging to his mother to keep her from getting away this time. At the scene at Judy's hotel room, after Scotty has taken Judy out to dinner, he invites her for another date. Tomorrow night, she asks, to which she responds, no, I mean tomorrow morning. When she responds, but I have to go to work, I've got a job. Scotty, expressing the desire of every child with separation anxiety, replies, don't go to your job. 
Later, he tells you, I just want to be with you as much as I can. Whereas in one part, in part one of Vertigo, Scotty helplessly stood by as Madeline continuously disappeared, ultimately fleeing from his arms and jumping to her death, seemingly. In part two, Scotty tightly controls her behavior, pinning her down, bending her to his will. And of course, people pointed out the similarities between Hitchcock and his stars and the kind of control so that these objects like Madeline are not going to get away. Now, from a contemporary feminist perspective, and of course, I saw this film originally before I knew anything about feminism, um, Scotty's domination of Judy, his insistence on changing her into an image of his desire with no regard for her wishes is totally reprehensible, a classic example of patriarchal domination. When it dawns upon Scotty that in order to fill his desire, Judy will have to change the color of her hair, he remarks, it can't matter to you. And this line, inevitably, last night, oh, did I love it, when the audience, it just brought down the house, that line. <laughs> and um, it should, it's outrageous. But I think most viewers of Vertigo, unless you're really, you know, you've evolved into higher consciousness somehow, um, are sufficiently identified with Scotty's traumatic loss to want him to be triumphant in his desire to repeat Madeline. You watch it with such excitement as you see her slowly change. Because on some level, this is absolutely everyone's wish, to get back an ecstatic state of merger with an originary and possible object. Or at least that's what Lacan thinks anyway. Hitchcock affords movie viewers an extraordinary, if highly uneasy and terrifying pleasure by granting Scotty his wish. We know he's mad as hell. I mean, he's crazy, but you want it to happen. The sequence in which Judy gradually morphs back into Madeline and Scotty kisses the restored Madeline in her bedroom, I think are two of the most powerful moments in all of cinema. You know, and that's, I think, one of the reasons I used to go back. I just wanted to see that again and again. It was so scary and yet powerful. At the end of Vertigo, Scotty emerges from his bondage to the past and from the evidence of his ascending the bell tower does triumph over his condition of vertigo. But the price is Judy's life. While Scotty does not literally cause Judy's death, if not for his insistence, she would never be at the top of the tower in the first place. Scotty, Judy begs Scotty to protect her, just as Madeline had in the past, but he fails to hold her back when she falls from the tower, even though this time, you have to admit, he's up there, he's in a position to do so. Scotty's action in part two of Vertigo has all the signs of a fixated and ritualized perverse scenario in which Scotty forces the restored Madeline up the tower so that he can lose her again. And this is this repetition compulsion, which is, is one of the most you know, befuddling types of human behavior that psychoanalysis tries to deal with and, and, and understand. Um, but Scotty's loss of Madeline at the end of the film is significantly different from the first time he loses her. In his first loss, Madeline flees from his arms and rushes up the tower while he, you know, incapacitated by his vertigo, legs behind and has to watch passively as she goes off the tower. The second time, it is Scotty's will, not Madeline's, that she climbed the tower. 
The first time, Scotty loses the woman he loves. The second time, he loses the woman he hates. Look what she's done to him in that sadistic way he talks to her, that necklace, Madeline. You know, he becomes the detective, you know, who is finding the guilty woman and finally really letting go. Early in the film, Midge has told Scotty that the only way he can recover from his vertigo is to relieve the experience that originally brought it about. Relive it, not relieve it. In this case, he must relive the experience of seeing someone fall to their death. You know, that's the thing that sets it off, seeing that policeman go over. With shocking brutality, Scotty recruits Judy for this purpose. He drags her up the tower, an event captured in images that simultaneously evoke strangulation and rape. And I'd have to, like Richard, show you that again to see it. But, you know, she's almost like naked, and he's got his hands around her throat. And the way that he just pulls her up, there's something so brutal, so violent about that scene. Yet, and this is what I'm going to conclude with, Finally, the ending of Vertigo remains profoundly and fascinatingly ambiguous. After denouncing Judy as Madeline as a fake, a counterfeit, he moment, and I'm glad you showed this this morning, Richard, so it's in everybody's mind. He momentarily falls back under the spell of his delusional desire, proclaiming to Judy, I loved you so, Maddie. You know, he calls her Maddie again. All of a sudden, she's there again for him. After Judy pleads that she loves him and begs for his protection, he seemingly snaps back into reality. He says, it's too late. There's no getting her back. Bringing. What? Bringing her back. There, okay, there's no bringing her back. Okay. Okay. Thank you, thank you. This is an extraordinary moment of clarity, a realization that his romantic ideal is an impossible illusion. And this is the kind of insight it would take most people with Scotty's condition years of psychoanalysis to achieve. But when he then kisses her, we do not know who it is that Scotty kisses. Is it the Madeline of his fantasy, still not relinquished after all? Or Judy now as herself? Has he finally come? We just don't know because it's visual and we're just re reading the image. Is Judy's fatal fall the result of Scotty's will, the ultimate expression of the renunciation of a fantasy and the restoration of a colder but saner self? Or has he found genuine love at last, only to lose it again through his own carelessness or bad luck? The nun, of course, has to take some blame for this. And she, of course, is the embodiment of that older, eerie woman who gets in the way of the fulfillment of heterosexual love that we see in film after film in Hitchcock. You know, she's the mother, but this time a mother superior, but still, nevertheless, she plays that role. Is Scotty really cured at last or now irretrievably shattered on the verge of psychic annihilation? And what's really fascinating, I was shattered and I was on the verge of psychic annihilation of this film. But I ask my students and I teach this course like 250 people at Pacific Film Archive and they all watch the film together. And I ask them, I say, how many people think that Scotty's triumphant and he has um, triumphed and he's okay at the end? He's gotten over his vertical and he's gotten his manhood back. And Half the people raise their hand, and I say, how many people think he's inevitable, he's annihilated now, and the other half raise their hand. And so that's real proof that this movie, that there is no answer to this movie, and people are co-collaborating with it. 
Our final image of Scotty leaves us forever in doubt. Looking down at the off-screen fallen image of Judy, he seems to have recovered from his vertigo. He's up high, but he can look down without, mm, you know, without all that. But his posture is strangely disconcerting. Slightly bent over with his arms askew, he closely resembles his nightmare image of a man plummeting through space. He is both standing erect and endlessly fallen. Whether Scotty ever gets over his second loss of Madeline is left up in the air. By leaving the viewer in a painful state of unresolved suspense, Hitchcock makes it hard to get over the film. The result is one that people tend to watch the film again and again as if repeated viewing will finally allow them to work through the unresolved pain of the ending and of course the popularity of Vertigo location tours. We who seek vestiges of vertigo continue Scotty's doomed quest to make a fantasy real, to diminish the gap between representation of reality, and therefore to seek an illusory means by which to overcome loss. Hitchcock makes melancholics of us all. Thanks. Thank you, Marilyn. And now, Roland Green. I want to say, uh, begin by thanking uh, Jean-Pierre for inviting me to participate in this event. When he approached me uh, about a year ago with plans for this conference, um, the original idea, as he put it to me, was that we would... Uh, in fact, what has been realized, that we would include uh, aficionados as well as uh, uh, professional film scholars and, uh, and as well as uh, participants in the Hitchcock industry. And being no film scholar and, and no Hitchcock expert, uh, but rather having the kind of relation to Alfred Hitchcock's work that um, many scholars of literature and culture uh, do, that is, seeing his work as a kind of uh, uh, encoded um, representation of many of the issues of, of culture and uh, psychology that some of us are concerned with in the rest of our work, I was happy to agree to participate in that spirit. And so I'm honored by the invitation to speak to all of you. And uh, I have to say, slightly intimidated at speaking in front of people that I know to be such distinguished uh, scholars and teachers of film, as well as practitioners. Um, we were supposed to begin by saying something autobiographical about our relation to vertigo. And uh, first of all, uh, I was, uh, I'm 50 years old, so I was born during the filming of Vertigo. <laughs> and uh, I'm certainly, uh, uh, I will say something in just a moment about my, my first recollection of seeing the film, but in order to contextualize it, I have to tell you that I, um, although as I say, I'm no scholar of film and I'm certainly no have no professional connection to the film industry. Nevertheless, uh, I grew up in Hollywood, and uh, I come from, although my, I myself am a, am a literature scholar, I uh, come from a long line of, of working actors, uh, not stars, but working actors, who uh, for generations, who being um, locals in Los Angeles and being uh, Latinos, for generations have played Latinos in the movies. Uh, they're in fact all women. Um, but uh, my sister is a working actress. Uh, my mother is, was a, a, a working actress and a singer. Um, my grandmother 
was uh, in silent films. She was uh, one of the people in the days of silent westerns with uh, William S. Hart, who um, was cast into those films by standing around in the afternoon in a place called Gower Gulch on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood, which is now memorialized by a strip mall called Gower Gulch. But in those days, it was, it was the corner of, of Sunset and Gower and around Hollywood and Gower, where if you stood there in the morning, you could be cast by the afternoon as, a, as an extra in a, in a film. And my grandmother played a number of um, you know, bar girls and things like this in, in saloons uh, in, in silent films. And my great aunt, was uh, is danced one half of the most famous tango in history with Rudolph Valentino <laughs> in uh, The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. Uh, I say all this only to contextualize what I'm about to talk about in connection with Vertigo, because when I remember, when I think back to my first, my recollection of seeing the film for the first time, and I don't know when it was, but I know I was uh, a child, and I don't even remember whether it could have been, the authorities in here will have to tell me whether it could have been on TV or in a revival house. I don't know where I would have seen it for the first time. Uh, I distinctly remember my grandmother telling me that this was the story of a woman named Carlota Valdez. <laughs> Valdez is actually a family name of ours, but, but I tell you that because it contextualizes what I'm about to say about the film. So that's, that's my only biographical connection to Vertigo and my only recollection of seeing it um, in a formative way in, in my early years. When I think back on this film and, and then watched it again, and I, like Jean-Pierre and others, I watch it regularly, so I, I, I keep up with it at every, sort of every phase of life and, and uh, try to think about it again from, from each successive um, vantage point. Uh, looking at it this time and thinking back on it in connection with uh, this event, uh, it seems to me that what I was most struck by this time is the ways that Vertigo, while it intrigues all of us, obviously we're here, and it, and it makes a great deal of sense in several ways, at the level of plot it makes almost no sense at all. The outrageously elaborate scheme of Gavin Elster to murder his wife under the cover of a staged suicide from a tower and his recruitment of Scotty Ferguson as an unwitting accomplice on the strength of their connection as Stanford alumni. <laughs> Judy Barton's portrayal, Judy Barton's unbelievable portrayal of Madeline Elster. All of these plot points could be demolished with one or two well-placed questions. Um, the logistics of the suicide scene alone would require Elster to have a number of helpers not to mention the certainty that Scotty would not want to look closely at the body after that event. Now, since we know that Hitchcock was fastidious about plausibility and continuity in many of his other films, such as North by Northwest, the following year, 1959, where he famously shut down filming for a day while he and his staff figured out in the, the scene in uh, the train station in Chicago when Martin Landau, who's working for the villain James Mason, phones um, um, Eva Marie Saint, who's in the next phone booth. And Hitchcock shut down filming for a day while he had his staff figure out how he could have known, how Martin Landau could have known the phone number in this nearby phone booth. Um, one can speculate that Vertigo is not subject to these kinds of issues for Hitchcock uh, compared to the rest of his work. That 
Vertigo is to the rest of his work uh, a kind of Baroque elaboration, uh, a pushing of the conventions outward uh, until their seams are exposed, and an invitation and here to the viewer uh, to gaze down vertiginously into the very center of a work that for all its rational apparatus cannot be explained or understood, but must be experienced. There are a number of, of shots in the movie where, as Hitchcock loves these shots, and we saw one earlier this morning in Professor Allen's presentation in the, the, the Ambrose Chapel uh, episode in, uh, um, in The Man Who Knew Too Much, the 1950s Man Who Knew Too Much, where, um, where a, a scene will begin with the protagonist, in this case Jimmy Stewart, entering a space and looking around and Re hearing, seeing that episode this morning from the Ambrose Chapel uh, scene from um, The Man Who Knew Too Much reminded me and made me think about a contrast between most of those other movies of this era in Hitchcock's body of work and this one. The contrast being that how many of those kinds of scenes in which the character walks, the protagonist walks in and surveys the scene in, in the, the usual version of this in Hitchcock, what is going through that character's mind is uh, what's happening here, as in the scene this morning. But what's usually going on in Vertigo when he walks into a scene, as for instance the scene in which uh, Jimmy Stewart enters the McKittrick Hotel for the first time and looks up, is what am I looking at here? And it seems to me that that's part of the difference between a kind of regular Hitchcock film and a kind of Hitchcockian Baroque uh, in which the, 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 the protagonist spectator is not just trying to figure out in a plot sense or a suspense way what's happening to him, but where he is in a kind of uh, sensory uh, way. And we are feeling that too. Um, so seen this way, Hitch, uh, Vertigo is a kind of what, what a distinguished art historian once called uh, the typical Baroque work of art, a marvelous theater of sensations. It doesn't necessarily have to make a great deal of sense, but it presents you with one marvelous sensation after another. We might go so far as to say that the inevitable errors in continuity and verisimilitude that to some degree crop up in all of Hitchcock's work, such as uh, the cameras and the crew members that are fleetingly visible, uh, surprisingly often in Hitchcock, uh, not to mention his own appearances in the movies, have a different value here than in most of the other films as elements of texture that belong to the same fabric that I mentioned, as, of the fabric of a plot and characters stretched to the breaking point, uh, that then throws us back on a different set of issues, a different set of satisfactions and, uh, and, and uh, um, fulfillment than we would get if this film were uh, entirely about the res its resolution at the level of plot and character. Now, since the conventional framework of the film, the plot and the character, seems to me at least deliberately suspect. I want to dwell for just a few minutes on the element of place, especially the role of San Francisco as a figure for the mystery at the heart of Vertigo. The city, of course, for Hitchcock across his work is an object of recurrent fascination. Um, but in Vertigo, San Francisco is much more than what it is in, say, The Birds. Uh, where it is, I, the city is there, I think, uh, a kind of picturesque backdrop um, in which somehow you can uh, get a parking space in Union Square uh, uh, in the middle of a weekday morning. 
but beyond that, it's, it doesn't have much to do with the real San Francisco. In, in Vertigo, San Francisco's past is the past of the characters, uh, really inseparable from their past. And an itinerary through a series of places allows Scotty and us to reconstruct those pasts together. At the same time, the film depends on the mid-20th century amnesia that San Francisco, and Los Angeles for that matter, maintained about its Spanish past. Gavin Elster, uh, if, the name Elster of course is, is, uh, uh, is German for magpie, but uh, it can mean as, as uh, Marilyn was saying, uh, oldster, when, by punningly can mean elder, oldster, elster, uh, and I like to take it to mean also other Elster, <laughs> Gavin Elster uh, can depend on the fact, somehow in this film, can depend on the fact that to a lifelong San Franciscan like Scotty Ferguson, Spanish California seems to be a foreign country overlaid on his native city. And its period of Mexican rule, independence, and absorption into the United States after the Mexican-American War of the 1840s seems as remote as the distant colonial period seemingly not 100 years in the past at the time of vertigo, which it is, but more like 300 years in the past. The by contrast, the contemporaneous gold rush period uh, looms much larger for white Californians and especially for San Franciscans of, of the middle 20th century. When Ellen Corby, the actress who plays the manager of the McKittrick Hotel, tells Scotty uh, that Carlotta Valdez's name, Valdez, she says, Spanish, you know, she's offering him a glimpse into a vertiginous history that is, as Elster knows, as disorienting to Scotty as the heights to which he cannot ascend. It is the counterpart to the other kind of vertigo, the neurological vertigo that afflicts uh, him. And by the way, for uh, Californians of a certain vintage, namely mine, uh, the, the mispronunciation of Spanish names by mid-century Anglo-Americans is a marker First of all, for the, in, for the film's purposes, it's a marker of that boundary that Hitchcock and Elster force Scotty across. Um, but it's also a kind of delightful um, souvenir of a certain moment uh, in, in, in the past century in which, uh, especially on the part of people, who, uh, one's friends' dads, one heard names outrageously, hilariously mispronounced all the time. Of course, San Francisco is full of mispronounced Spanish names. Vallejo Street, uh, you know, I live in a neighborhood called Noe Valley. Uh, but, but, uh, uh, but I remember many middle-aged people in the era that Vertigo is about uh, that, who treated Spanish names uh, gingerly and awkwardly in a way that's sort of unimaginable now. One might think it hasn't changed that much, but I remember a, a three-term mayor of Los Angeles who always pronounced the name of the city Los Angeles. <laughs> So some things do change. This is the, so this is the other vertigo in the film, the one that makes a mere hundred years ago seem to belong to a distant and mysterious past and makes one's own city and region into an illegible place that must be read for mysterious clues. The rather comical scene in which Scotty and Midge visit the Argosy bookshop to consult an amateur historian, Pop Liebel, for insight into this past would be absurd if the film were set in Boston or Philadelphia or New York, where a 100-year span would hardly require such a specialized consultation. In those places, one would probably ask an older person who would remember having heard something about the personalities of that era. 
What motivates Scotty here is not only his modest historical distance from Carlota Valdez, but the sense that ethnic and linguistic distinctions push that past farther back, making a mere great-grandmother into a kind of frightening monster, someone dead, as Elster says, come to bring a curse into the present. And the makeup as Madeline that Wally Westmore gives to Kim Novak and the gray wardrobe by Edith Head exaggeratedly whiten Novak so that the separation from this past that is second nature to white Americans of Scotty's generation is written on Novak's body. It's quite interesting to compare Judy Barton because Judy Barton, um, if you look at her uh, self-presentation and the way she's made up and dressed, is obviously on one level a white woman from Salina, Kansas, but she is not nearly as ethnically and culturally marked as Judy as Madeline is marked by that whitening, that exaggerated whitening. Judy looks like she could have been adapting her appearance from, and this is kind of a joke, I think, on the part of, probably on the part of uh, uh, Westmore and Head, she could have been adapting her appearance from uh, screen Latinas like Yvonne DiCarlo and uh, Rita Hayworth. And in fact, I was gonna, I thought about this just before I came over and I Googled this I, to, to see if I was right in my recollection. And if, I, I regret I don't have it to show you, but if you Google Yvonne DiCarlo in the Ten Commandments and you look for the first image that comes up, you will see an image that looks remarkably like Judy Barton. Uh, so I think this is the inside joke of this, is that this, uh, this, this uh, woman who is, has a kind of uh, appearance mediated by mass entertainment uh, uh, based on a kind of uh, mass-marketed idea of glamour uh, filtered down condescendingly to Salina, Kansas, uh, then has to be whitened and transformed into uh, the woman who in fact has the Latin uh, past. Um, so let me, let me, I just want to mention two more things quickly and then, and then I'll conclude. Um, so if this, is, if this movie is about representing this, what I'm calling the second vertigo, this vertiginous uh, uh, history of, of San Francisco and of the region uh, as alien to Scotty and in some sense illegible to Scotty, the two missions, Dolores and San Juan Bautista, are the loci of this vertiginous history. Mission Dolores appears according to the 19th century conceit still exists, really, which divides San Francisco into a white north and a brown south, with Market Street as the waste of this civic body. When Scotty pursues Madeline from the flower shop near Union Square to the Mission Cemetery and then to the Palace of the Legion of Honor in the northwest part of the city, he is tracing the outlines of this figure with the mission as the elemental counterpart to the ethereal character of Knob Hill and Golden Gate Park. Again, the analogy to other cities is irresistible. Would any modern Bostonian enter the old granary burial ground or Copse Hill Cemetery where figures of the 17th and 18th centuries are buried with anything like the demeanor with which Scotty surveys the Mission Cemetery like an anthropologist on a field expedition? Scotty might as well be walking into Mexico since this place, despite its being the namesake of the city itself, remains in 1958 about Pretty un, just about pretty unassimilated into the white culture that the film represents by Ernie's, Ransahoff's, and the Pacific Union Club. Now, San Juan Bautista, and I want to conclude just by talking for a minute about that place and what it means here, I think. San Juan Bautista represents the deeper south of the region's Spanish history, which is from the vantage of characters like Elster, Scotty, and Midge, 
hidden in plain sight. If San Francisco had its own north and south, now San Francisco in its entirety is one north with the peninsula and below as the new south. This is where Carlota Valdez was born, according to Pop Liebel, somewhere small to the south of the city, a mission settlement. If Carlota Valdez was born at or near San Juan Bautista, which was one of the least populated missions in the mid-19th century, with about 900 Indians in its community, then of course she is hardly Spanish, as the hotel clerk has it. Uh, foreign but sweet, she says. Uh, but she is rather either a Creole, that is what is known locally as a Californio, uh, born to Spanish parents in California, or much more likely a mixed blood child of neophytes or converted Indians within the mission community. San Juan Bautista was founded in 1797. Carlota Valdez could have been a second or third generation Mestiza California, uh, Creole, Creole. Now these historical facts by themselves matter little to vertigo. I believe after all that the film is, as I said, a Baroque reflection uh, on the issues of desire and romantic deception that Professor Allen and others have spoken about today. But what does matter, I think, what makes these facts matter is that Elster devises for Scotty a vertiginous route into the heart of Spanish California, which is to say where the missions are concerned, Native American California, as a kind of dislocation and disorientation that parallels his neurological condition. As he discovers the mission, uh, the first time, interprets its furnishings, and finally ascends the tower. In the film's terms, he gets closer to this, to him, illegible past. Of course, there is no family secret here, except for the notion, whether real or invented by Elster, uh, we don't know, of mental illness in Madeline's descent from sad Carlota. And as Madeline attempts to show herself as entrapped by this family romance, Scotty struggles just as hard to keep her in the here and now of 1950s San Francisco. The tower is a path in pursuit of a past that for the hapless Scotty will never be more than dimly understood legend. It leads nowhere but to the realization of Elster's murder plot the first time, the, in, I should say the realization in the sense of the enactment of Elster's murder plot the first time, and then the second time to the realization of that plot in a different sense in Scotty's understanding of it. The tower is a romantic projection on a mundane scene. It is Scotty's romantic ignorance of this vertiginous history that makes this part of the plan succeed. And I'm sure everyone knows that the, uh, the tower is, a, is literally a romantic projection because San Juan Bautista had torn down its bell tower before Vertigo was shot there, and the film's much taller tower is actually a painting. Uh, there was no actual tower on, on San Juan Bautista. So to summarize, my view of this, uh, admittedly partial view of this uh, uh, multitudinous uh, film, I, see, I, I can't help but see Vertigo as a document of a certain mid-century moment in Western American culture exploited by Hitchcock in which a pattern of what is, let's say a pattern of what is legible and illegible uh, in cultural forms uh, makes it especially possible and especially vivid in filmic terms for, um, uh, for an ordinary person like Scotty Ferguson to move through elements of his own society as though a visitor, as though a, a, a a, uh, not quite a tourist, but as though a kind of explorer or visitor. Uh, Elster's plan to force Scotty out of his one orbit and into another, and his forcing Scotty into a confrontation 
with a past that is all around him all the time, but somehow still inscrutable, brings about what I think is the real, the second vertigo, the, to me the more interesting vertigo than the literal vertigo of the film. Thank you. Gonna, then it's going to get in your... Ah, I see. Protection, sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, no problem. And I would like uh, to invite you to ask uh, questions of our presenters, and please raise your hands so that we can give you the mics. Okay. While we're waiting, let me just point out, uh, listening to uh, the very interesting uh, presentations, and among other things, the importance which a number of presenters have noted of uh, the literal and the implicit meanings or extended, expanded meanings of the word, of certain words, such as Elster. At the end of the film, Scotty also uh, notes that Elster ditched Judy slash Madeline, and I think the ditch, uh, a grave which awaits him, is also a very important. Uh, moment or object or empty object, the void in the film, which directly links this uh, necrophiliac, funerary, and mortifying aspect or mortified aspect of the film, the anemic aspect of the film with the notion of the cinema itself, which uh, was, uh, uh, was uh, noted in Professor Fabe's uh, uh, lecture, the, the notion of the imaginary signifier somehow being directly linked with uh, the passage through the grave which Scotty enacts in his uh, nightmare when he in fact ends up on the other side of the grave in front of a white glaring empty screen which is at the end of the film confirmed by the evocation of the ditch but now I think we are set up and let's hear the questions. I have a couple of things to ask the speakers to, to ponder. Uh, one is that if we think about the very end of the film, um, I mean, it seems to me the notion that Scotty might be cured has to be radically modified. I mean, what's, what are the real choices there, fictional choices? He jumps off. Um, he's totally nuts and is hauled away. Or he's not totally nuts and he's convicted of God knows what. But if you think of the uh, trial scene, the inquest scene, there's already a lot of stuff against him there in San Luis Obispo. So it's not a very <laughs> promising in terms of a cure. So that's one. The second is, I'd just like to modify the sense of identification uh, uh, of the viewer uh, in tracking Madeline. I mean, within the fiction, this is an imposture. It's like the return of Martin Gare, something like that. You know, uh, he can kiss her, he can dress her, he can drive her around. You know, uh, and uh, you know we can't. <laughs> you know, so the idea that there's some kind of direct interchange between her fictionality and the story, 
and her standing for us as a fiction seems to me to need to be worked on. And the film already includes this problem with Midge, because you know I can't kiss Madeline; she really can't kiss Scotty. You know, uh, so I I just am a little nervous about the the sense of some kind of direct uh, identification um, of this sort, because it seems to me that the layers of fictionality are so thick. You know, and so those are the two things I'm just asking for comments about. Well, if I, regarding the ending, the choices at the ending, we have a, a piece of evidence here because Hitchcock, forced by the censorship, shot another ending. Actually, a supplementary, complementary ending. No, people know about this, yes? Oh, so this is more or less what happens. We see um, uh, Scotty in Midge's apartment. The music is playing Mozart, and all of a sudden, from the radio station, and all of a sudden the music stops, and someone says on the radio, um, we have just learned that Mr. Gavin Elser uh, was uh, arrested in Portugal, and he's accused of being the murderer of his wife, Madeleine Elser. And Scotty goes then to the window. We, uh, there is a final scene of a panorama of San Francisco. And it's obvious that Scotty is going to marry Midge. That's the ending. And Hitchcock uh, shot that. Well, it's not obvious. It's not obvious. No, OK. I, re I withdraw the term obvious. Nothing is obvious. But let's, there is a hint of that, anyway. Um, and that's, of course, I mean, with that ending, the movie loses all interest, I would say, yeah, obviously. Um, yeah, there's another um, fact of, not, not exactly a fact, because it doesn't matter what the director says right, but in one interview that I read anyway, and they say, what happens to Scotty to Hitchcock? Yeah. <laughs> Hitchcock says, he jumps. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, so I, I, I wanted to apologize first because I won't be able to stay as planned uh, for the following session. And sorry, Jean-Pierre. Uh, yeah. But when, when you... Maybe you should introduce yourself. Yeah, yes. I'm, Monsieur I'm, Consul General de France. I'm the Consul General of France, Pierre-François Maurier. Yeah. And I, of course, uh, as a Consul General, I have, uh, have no reason to be here uh, today. Uh, <laughs> as a member of the club. <laughs> exactly, except that I suffer some... Like, I have suffered, like uh, some of you have... Uh, of PVSD, post-vertigo stress disorder. But anyway, um, I, I, I plan to, <clears throat> I plan to um, uh, intervene on the question of, as a French, of course, as, on the question of religion in uh, vertigo. And I was really interested by, by, your, by your lecture, Professor. Um, uh, to my point of view, there are two movies absolutely different and separated only by one year, North by Northwest and Vertigo. North by Northwest is a sort of orthogonal movie with only lines. A totally Protestant and American movie, and actually a road movie, a Lewis and Clark movie, if I may say so. And, and Vertigo, um, on the contrary, is a circular, ellipsoidal movie. And to my point of view, 
a, a Catholic movie. And as you know, of course, <laughs> the, the, the relation of Hitchcock with Catholicism was, was something. <laughs> so I, I wanted to have your, your opinion of, uh, on this topic, if possible, Professor. Thank you. A, I think that's an absolutely uh, uh, prescient uh, distinction between the two. Uh, I hadn't thought of the, the Lewis and Clark connection before, but that is brilliant. Um, I, I don't know what I can say except to say that those two, I, I can't think of any two movies made in, in two consecutive years by the same filmmaker that are so uh, different in such, uh, um, such uh, rich ways as those two. Um, what they have in common, I guess, is a kind of, um, uh, I mean, I defer to the Hitchcock scholars who are here, but a kind of, um, um, a kind of uh, uh, plot for its own sake that becomes important at that stage of Hitchcock's career in which uh, I, I, this summer I happened to watch North by Northwest again and again for accidental reasons. Uh, uh, I, was, I was staying in a, I was renting, uh, subletting someone's apartment in Chicago where that was the only DVD this person owned. And, and I watched it every day when I was on the treadmill. Uh, so I watched it probably 10 days in a row, uh, just repeatedly. And uh, there's, uh, what they do have in common is, is a kind of, um, um, Episodic quality that that where it's one one thing after another without where at a certain point the the sequence itself rather than any kind of knowledge that one is accumulating becomes important and yet the difference really is that um, uh, in Vertigo that there's a funny way in which that that lack of accumulating knowledge becomes a kind of knowledge of its own. It, it's recursive after a while, and one, uh, start, Scotty starts to gain what I would call something more like experience rather than knowledge, whereas Cary Grant is, toward the end of North by Northwest, is as, as blank about what's happening to him as he is at the beginning. And, um, uh, of course, a lot of it has to do with the brilliant way that Hitchcock found the actors for these personae, who one couldn't imagine them in these roles reversed. But um, there is something about a kind of, through this, this particular sequence of, of Hitchcock's films, starting from maybe um, the remake of The Man Who Knew Too Much and going through maybe The Birds, where there is this kind of regular exploration of the possibilities of a plot, the possibilities of, the, of a plot as something that can be emptied out and then filled with something other than the conventional satisfactions that one gets from a plot. That is, kinds of knowledge, kinds of experience, kinds of sensations. And by changing the nature of those from film to film, he gives us these patterns that we can, I think, quite validly project onto them distinctions like uh, um, you know, different kinds of road movie, different kinds of religious orientations, different kinds of thematic orientations. So I think that's quite, I think that's quite right. Yeah. Oh, please, please. Just a, a quick thing is that I think North by Northwest is a recuperation of the horrors that are gone through in Vertigo. Um, Vertigo was just such a shock to have the film end that way. And Scotty is so passive, is so completely defeated. I, I really believe in the reading that he's annihilated. I don't know those half of the people in my audiences who thought he was fine. I and mean, we should talk about that later. But I think one, one really interesting thing at the end of the film is when he pulls um, her up from the mountain, that, that's recuperating Scotty on the rooftop, not being able to be saved by 
by the policeman. It's almost, you could almost see it as a step-by-step transformation of a poor, passive, done-upon male character impotent character all of a sudden becomes Cary Grant, this very (laughs) masculine, you know, and all my students point out, oh, this is early James Bond. And so it's just the kind of opposite. He's playing around with these two possibilities. So I see them as answering to each other. And actually, I'd like to add a a note to this. Uh, From a metaphysical point of view, which was my point of view here, I see a continuity between the two movies and the obvious structural resemblance. In both movies, you have a non-existent object which is occupied. That is, you have a fictitious character in North, Northwest, it's someone called David Kaplan, mm-hmm. who is a CIA made-up spy, mm-hmm. but actually that person doesn't exist. It's George, and George Kaplan. It's George Kaplan, sorry. <laughs> David Kaplan, that's an analytical <laughs> philosopher here. In, uh, okay, sorry, sorry. Although I'm talking about analytical philosophy, I'm using analytical philosophy, philosophical tools here. So maybe that's the reason of that. So anyway, and absolutely by chance, this empty place is occupied by mm-hmm. Roger Thornhill. Right. Yeah, this publicity guy, I mean, absolutely, et cetera. So that's a fundamental point, uh, res- uh, uh, similar point, I mean, similar structure mm. from the point of view that we discussed, uh, and your point of view in particular, that is a non-existing object that passes off as a lost object. That's a fundamental point, of course. It's also interesting that Roger O. Thornhill, his middle initial is O, which is nothing. And so it's sort of as if he's a kind of identityless person. And this goes all the way back to Rebecca and all these themes of identity yes. and Hitchcock, who yes. sort of moves into the identity of somebody who's already there, and pretty soon he becomes it. <coughs> and Hitchcock is constantly playing around with people, and it's sort of um, the point about Judy really becoming Madeline. But it's sort of like it, it goes the other way. We think there's this essence in us, and we become who we are, but in Hitchcock's films, it's the other way around. We get put into situations and we are defined externally as someone. And I think that happens in um, you know, so many of Hitchcock's films and especially North by Northwest. We have two questions here and then here and I see more. Okay. Um, Chris, <clears throat> so I felt really illuminated to, to hear the uh, Catholic Protestant dimension brought up and um, I'd like to ask the panelists to maybe comment I mean there are a few moments in the film where uh, so as a Catholic film it explicitly rejects um, so for example Mozart or sort of Western classical music appears at two moments one right at the beginning where he has a midge switch off the gramophone because he finds it annoying and then when he's in the mental hospital Mozart is playing it intrudes it doesn't belong and and Scotty pushes it away um, again, the psychiatric tradition uh, stemming from Freud, again, in his, the, the, the doctor there has theories, and again, they seem completely orthogonal to what's truly going on with Scotty. So perhaps the, the panelists would like to comment on some of those themes. No. <laughs> oh, I would say that, you know, just the, the theme of guilt and the theme, you know, one of the reasons I think Judy has to go off the edge is because, first, censorship. Can you really let somebody who did something like that, who was part of a murder plot, find a happy ending and go off forever? She'd be getting away with another crime. But also, that sense that was brought up, that I thought was just absolutely wonderful at the end of the film, when um, you think of Scott, aren't they gonna say, hey, this is the second woman in a gray suit that you've killed within a year? Now, 
is this just a coincidence? And this sense that he is going to be another one of the wrong men, you know, who's innocent but feels so unbelievably guilty for something that he doesn't know quite what he's guilty about. And that brings together Freud and the sense of original sin and the need for forgiveness and grace. And so that's, that's the only thing that I would start to begin with that. But other? Actually, I have a question for Roma. Um, I was fascinated. A microphone? Yeah, sorry. But, uh, the whole discussion is fascinating, actually. So there are so many aspects. Um, we all agree, it seems, that the plausibility of the plot, really, uh, Hitchcock doesn't, couldn't care less. However, however, and this is really, as you said, uh, specifically, uh, specifically true of vertical. However, uh, I'm going to talk about, I mean, I have a question for you regarding the so-called Latin or mestizo or whatever, um, Spanish aspect of Jude. Um, <clears throat> well, if we take the plots uh, seriously, we must admit within the fiction, of course, within the fiction, that Carlota's, Carlota Valdez is not part of Galvin Elster. I mean, Galvin Elster didn't make up the Carlota Valdez character. She really exists within the fiction because, I mean, there is a portrait in the Palace of Religion of Honor, her gravestone, etc., etc. Paul Pliebel talks about her. So she's a real person. Now, if she's a real person, it's extremely likely, although the movie doesn't say anything, if I'm not mistaken about this, that the real Madeleine Elster is really, really the great-granddaughter of Carlota Valdez. Mm -hmm. Although the movie doesn't say anything about this, but we have to assume this. I assume that's true. Okay. Therefore, the real Madeleine Elster is a Latino. I mean, because she is the... Actually, that's the reason why she's rich, because uh, Carlota's daughter stayed with her father, who was a very rich man, who just jettisoned uh, Carlota. Um, and the wealth comes from there, her wealth. The real Madeleine Elsa's wealth comes, and she's a Latino or Latina or Latina, etc. So there is a plausibility here. Uh, uh, Gavin Elser had to find someone who looked like his real wife. And so it makes sense that Judy looks like a Latina, <laughs> like the real Madanesser. I mean, this is, this is really co consistent, you see? No? Does it? Although, this doesn't matter. I mean, and, and Hitchcock couldn't care less. Nonetheless, there is some kind of plausibility there. <laughs> I like that. I, you I, like do, I do tend to think, though, that Judy's appearance is just an in-joke on the part of the makeup and, uh, also, and yes. uh, costume people yes, to, yes, by yes. making her look like yes. a, a Latina. One comment and one question. Um, comment, and follow, just following up on North by Northwest Vertigo uh, discussion, which I agree with uh, everything what you both said about the, the comparison. Just to add to that a, just a little bit, I mean, one can easily imagine North by Northwest as being, you know, it, this paranoid, it's a paranoid conspiracy, Cold War, Cold, Cold War conspiracy fantasy film yes. in which, you know, the character is entrapped in, in, in this, uh, you know, a mesh of illusion and deception. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's only a little, you know, a, a little bit of imagination. One can see it in a complete, as a completely different film or more vertigo-like film. Um, and the other point I'd make about it is the, the, the question of, of, of duplicity and deception point I made this morning. Really, in Hitchcock, it cuts both ways. Duplicity, illusion, fictitiousness, it's the stuff of romance. It's, it's, you know, it, that's what makes the world fun and exciting. 
you know, it's Shakespearean. I mean, it's looking at the Shakespeare, the contrast between the comedies and the tragedies. Yeah. Whereas, whereas, the, whereas the, in, in Vertigo, duplicity and deception, is, as in Psycho, becomes uh, pernicious, uh, death-dealing, etc. But of course, there's a thin line, you know, how, what, which, it's a very thin line between which, 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 side, which side the story turns, which way the story turns. Uh, just there's one other way that, you know, North by Northwest and Vertigo are obviously rated, which you just made me think of when you're talking about this deception, is that the Eva Marie Saint character sleeps with him and then sends him to the cornfield to be annihilated. Exactly. But in this movie, she doesn't get punished or killed. She gets married. Yeah. And so, you know, once again, it takes that same situation but forces the happy rather than the unhappy right. ending. The other, the other point, though, I want... Uh, you didn't answer the question of the, 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 gen, the ge first gentleman asked, and, I mean, this seems to be fundamental. I can't, I can't believe I'm sitting in a conference on Vertigo and hearing Metz trotted out as a, as, a, as a paradigm case for understanding identification. I mean, you know, if you're going to say that Scotty and Madeline... Uh, obsession for Madeline... Is 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 as the way you describe pathological. Mm -hmm. You're essentially saying that the nature of our emotional response to fiction, and especially in particular cinema, for some reason, mm -hmm. it should essentially be modelled uh, along along the lines of a pathological identification or relationship. I don't think that's exactly what I was trying to say. I think I was. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe not exactly, but but you know, Metz's model of the for the the spectator is let's mm. be clear. That the spectator is under the condition of rather like a delusional, uh, a delusional uh, 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 human being, uh, unable clearly to discriminate what is real and what is imagined. That the spectator is oh. un undergoing a confusion between those two things, and that seems to me a fundamentally pr problematic conception of what it is to emotionally identify with a fiction, which we all know are fictions. I think that he, what I love about him is talking about, answering that question that I've always had as soon as I started studying cinema, was why we find these cinematic images so fascinating, why they have such a grasp on our psyche. And that quality that he talks about, about the tantalizingly real, and yet we know it's not real. In other words, I'm not saying, I don't believe that the, the characters are duped That's in any way. True. Yeah. Real. Right. No, that's true. So that that analogy doesn't work. <laughs> okay. Quest, question oh, okay. back here in the back. <laughs> I'm assuming that uh, Alfred Hitchcock never analyzed this movie himself. Did he ever analyze any of his movies? Yeah. Or, or when he did, for instance, in uh, the book Hitchcock by Truffaut, it was in such a Mediocre, but I, I suppose so. Willfully, willfully medi mediocre way. Oh, well, uh, oh, okay, okay. Can, if, okay, let me, okay, should I flesh that out? <laughs> I can. Okay, maybe later, maybe later in the afternoon, in the uh, second part. I will show you that what Hitchcock says about, uh, about vertigo in uh, Truffaut, in Hitchcock by Truffaut, is preposterous. The necrophilia, necrophilia, you say, yeah, argument is absolutely preposterous. As as Marilyn said, it's not a dead woman whom she is, is in love with. It's a woman who never existed. And, be, and a huge difference between being dead 
and never having existed. I mean, a huge <laughs> difference. Uh, but yes, of course. Um, a couple of things. One is, I mean, I can't believe there's like 3.30 and I'm going to be the person to introduce the word fetish to the proceedings. <laughs> but the thing about the fetish is that it is entered into voluntarily. It's someone who chooses to. And the fetish in film theory, as Richard well knows, has gotten kind of a bum rap. You know, uh, there are other schools of thought that the fetish is not necessarily, you know, this incredibly negative connotation to attach to the cinematic image. But what I wanted to add to, and sort of contra Richard's point about love, not that I'm contra love, but um, Vertigo is not just a culmination of these themes in Hitchcock that you guys have pointed to in the last three presentations, but it's also the culmination of this remarkable period in American cinema where films like Minnelli by Minnelli and Nicholas Ray, uh, John Ford's The Searchers, male protagonists just absolutely entering into a kind of delirious, uh, on-the-edge state that the film at some point mimics. And I think Vertigo really needs to be seen as part of that history, uh, as well as part of this history of the romantic irony that I think you're that properly giving to it. But Vertigo is more than that. You know, it's part of that other history. Uh, since you opened up the whole psychoanalytic abyss, <laughs> I, I can start with asking you this. Um, the uh, this summer, I I was uh, watching um, quite a few times Eyes Wide Shut, and then I read the Schnitzler story mm -hmm. on which it's based. And of course, there's all this wonderful idea of how uh, fantasy and dreams can eclipse reality and or, or take the place of reality. And, and if you watch the movie, you can see. That I saw some similarities between the Tom Cruise character in the film and, and, of course, in the story and, and the James Stewart character in Vertigo today. And I, I was wondering if you wanted to talk about this idea of what is, what is Vertigo saying about how, you know, is, is, is it worried about this idea of what is, do we need to even worry about reality if we can come up with something like a fantasy or a dream that is, in effect, just as good as reality and works just as well for us in terms of getting us what we want? If, I don't know if there's a question there, but... I think it's pretty dangerous when you do that. I mean, I think the film is a kind of allegory of the danger of confusing those realms. But you were going to say? Um, oh. I have another question. Oh. Does anybody else want to? Well, yeah. I mean, that's what. Oh. Okay. La Invention de Morel is it's just about mm -hmm. that, precisely. Uh, you speak into the mic so everybody yes. can hear. Yes, uh, but I, I thought it's I was. It's got to be really close. But anyway, okay. <laughs> It's a, it was Nobody's brought up what interests me. Why did Judy stay in San Francisco? Mm -hmm. Why is, I, I thought Judy, from my point of view, Judy was much more sexy than Madeline. And why was she staying in San Francisco? And when, and when Scotty first saw her, why didn't she say, bye, I got other things to do, find mm -hmm. somebody else. But she hung on, to, she let him hang on to her. And then she, she must have had a real crush on Scotty. But because Scotty, if I can yeah. propose, throw a, a, an answer, Scotty is the victim. Is Scotty is a victim of a syndrome that many shrinks see today, a new form of sexual impotence. Uh, those men who spend their nights and their days probably navigating the web, going from one erotic image to another and who are no longer interested 
in real women. This is serious. I mean, this is a, uh, this is a new syndrome of sexual impotence. And at the time of vertigo, there was no web, no internet, of course. But Scotty is only in love with images. I mean, that's precisely because an image, you cannot make set, uh, love to an image, of course. Because Scotty, oh, Judy, why does Judy? Oh, because she's in love with him. Yeah, you're right. She's in love with him. I mean, that's in the movie. She's mm -hmm. in love with him. Yes. Right. She's in love with him. She wants to be found. She's waiting for him to find her. But you said, no, I was responding to what you said about Judy being more sexy than, 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 Mar uh, than Madeleine. Of course. Maybe she wanted, she wanted him to find her because he was standing in front of the flower shop. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. What's the chance of that happening in real life? <laughs> Question in the far back there. Um, I was wondering on the point of the male protagonists who are kind of wandering through this delusion, if you could, I'm right here. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I was wondering if you could speak to the fact that Vertigo has almost more types of women than any other Hitchcock film. We have the rejected women in Midge. We have like in North by Northwest and To Catch a Thief, we have the manipulative woman and we have the woman who in a sense, is troubled um, by the male in her life. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about the delusion and the connection to the exaggerated version of a Hitchcock film that Vertigo really is. Well, I don't know who, uh, to, okay. So, okay, my interpretation of Vertigo, which I didn't propose today, um, is that the central character is Madeleine. When I say Madeleine, I mean the false Madeleine. The false Madeleine is a central character, although she is a fictitious character within the movie, within the fiction. Why? I want to go back to what uh, Marilyn uh, Fabe said, um, question she asked, very important question, whom is Scotty kissing at the end? Okay. Is he kissing Madeleine, the fantasy? Is he kissing Judy? Maybe it's undecidable. So I want to put the same question to Madeleine herself, not at the end, but on the lawn of San Juan Batista. Let me recall the, the dialogue. You believe that I love you? Yes. And if you lose me, you'll know that I loved you and wanted to go on loving you? I won't lose you. So the question is, you know, my kind of philosophy is a kind of bridge between analytic English-speaking philosophy and continental philosophy. I, mean, I don't want to I, won't, don't, I don't want to take sides here. But an analyt analytical philosopher, of course, a linguistic philosopher, would ask, what is the referent of the uh, personal pronoun I or me? When Madeleine asks, you believe that I love you, and if you lose me, you'll know that I, I loved you, Who, whom does that refer to? In Madeleine's mind. It cannot refer to Judy, and she is Judy, because she knows very well that Scotty has no idea of Judy is. I mean, he has never met Judy. It cannot really mean Madeleine, because Madeleine, the false Madeleine, knows that she Madeleine she doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. So there is no reference to this I or to this me. Mm -hmm. And my interpretation, mm -hmm. well, this is analytical philosophy. Okay, now let's talk about not continental philosophy, but just human, uh, human beings. 
interacting with one another. That's not philosophy. My interpretation is that at this stage, when Madeleine knows that she is going to vanish, take up the term, she knows that she's going to enter into a void much deeper and much darker than what we call death. As you very well explained, I mean, when you die or when you, you it, is, it remains true that you once you existed. But Manlen, the false Manlen, knows very well that when she vanishes, it won't be true anymore that she ever existed. So she knows very well that she's on the verge of an abyss, which is much deeper and darker than death. That's why I think the necrophilia, I mean, uh, interpretation of Hitchcock is absolutely lousy. And he knows that it's lousy. But it make, uh, and she knows, and that's why it's so poignant when you see the movie again and again and again. She's an incredibly suffering woman at that moment. And if you lose me, you'll know that I loved you and wanted to go, go on loving you. And, and Scotty, with a stupid ass, uh, answer, I won't lose you. Of course, he's going to. I think uh, at this point, let's close the session because there is another session starting at 4 o'clock, which will pretty much continue in this spirit. So thank you. The preceding program is copyrighted by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu.